Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, your host of Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I'm thrilled to have as my guest, Ariel Arce, the owner of Tokyo Record Bar and Ayers Champagne Bar, both of which share a building on McDougal Street in the heart of the West Village. Anyone who knows that area knows it is NYU Central. And it is incredibly difficult in that kind of location to have a quirky, independent, brainy, fun restaurant. But Ariel has figured out a way to make it work. Welcome, Ariel. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I really loved going to Tokyo Record Bar. And um, I love the surprise of walking into the champagne bar and thinking like, where am I going? What am I doing? There was no sign outside. Am I in the wrong place? And then you grab me practically by the collar and you're like, no, you're in the right place. Just follow me. You're late, which I was late. <laughs> I felt bad about that. But, um, you know, and you go down the creaky stairs and you're holding onto like a tube of metal and you, you have the open kitchen on one side and then you look into this small wooden room with 16 seats and flowers on the ceiling and you're like, this is going to be fun. There's there's something about that, and then the um, the vinyl. I mean, I come from the age of vinyl, so just seeing you know record sleeves that I recognize that were in my bedroom when I was growing up and listening to the music is a fantastic way to start. And then sitting down at the table and there's the um, the little cup and inside the cup is a sheet of paper and a little pencil, very short pencil. A golf pencil. It's a golf pencil, yeah. okay, um, to write down music choices. And then the guide to the music that is possible, which is such a great curated list to be sure that no one has a miserable experience. And so I think... I, you might have been generous to us because I think you're supposed to only have like one small sheet of paper, but I think we filled out two or three entire sheets of you know little small squares to hand into the DJ, and we got preferential t- treatment because we had many of our songs played. So it was a very special night for me. Um, so tell me about, and then that was just downstairs. Then we retired upstairs and had amazing champagne and cheese. So important. The cheese was so like a point, like like, perfectly at the moment, creamy, delicious. And then all those bubbles to scrub away that, you know, heavy cheesiness. So I had a great time, which is why we're here together, because I wanted to know all about how you made that magic happen. I think it's very hard in New York to do something that's so personal, particularly in real estate like that. So I got to ask you, you know, give me the lowdown on the, the real estate deal. How are you able to make this um, sort of dream come true. Well, I'm like sitting here blushing. So that's, <laughs> it's radio, that's no so great tell. for radio. Um, I give away all my secrets. Um, well, I don't know. Tokyo Record Bar and Airs is 
it's so funny hearing you talk about your experience of entering through it. And I, all I can think in my head is like, oh my God, we never finished that. Oh my God. <laughs> like that was supposed to get done. You were never supposed to see those things. And yet like that is what has added to the charm of the space so and what, what the experience. Done? Like the tube of metal that you, you know, hold on this rickety stair, you know, handrail situation. <laughs> um, that was like something that my father, my father built the restaurant. So it was something that he put in last minute because we were like, oh God, people have to go in between these two spaces. <laughs> and, you know, they both have technically separate entrances entrances. Um, but we never really used that. And so much of what is happening in the space right now is happening out of necessity. Um, we are such a small team and such a super devoted team um, that we can't really have a host for Tokyo Record Bar. We can't have a host for Airs. So just by necessity, now people enter through upstairs and go downstairs. And there wasn't supposed to be that much traffic through the stairway. And you weren't supposed to be walking by and seeing the kitchen, but you do. <laughs> and like, it adds all this charm because you've got these two lovely chefs in the kitchen who like wave to you and say hey and like sometimes give people hugs and like talk to them about their personal problems while they're <laughs> waiting to enter the Tokyo Record Bar space. So it's like, I think the beauty of the place and of the um, unexpected is the personalities that have come out of it and have kind of charmed everybody. Um, I hope that's what I like. That's my goal is that um, we were never supposed to be a place where the guests did not get to participate. Um, so much of wine and so much of these kind of niche, niche cultures of food and beverage um, become very artsy fartsy and people sit there and and kind of have them happen onto them. And we wanted our guests to be able to participate and to feel um, like they were a part of the experience and to feel like they were important and that they weren't being talked down to. Okay, at least it starts in part with a golf pencil. Right. Okay, why? A, a very thought-out golf pencil. Tell it's me why. from CW Enterprises, which is Caroline Weaver's uh, graphite kind of mecca in New York City. And you she, have to tell me more. Okay, she, Caroline Weaver? Caroline Weaver is the shit. Sorry, can I say that? Yeah. Caroline Weaver is the best. She opened a tiny little pencil shop above Birds and Bubbles, oh which God. was the first place that I worked with in Champaign in New York. Um, and everybody thought she was crazy because she opened this tiny little shop dedicated to graphite. And she does insane business because apparently pencils are a big damn deal. And I went and spoke to her because I was like, we need a pencil. I think I want a Japanese pencil because we're doing Tokyo Record Bar. And she was like, no, no, no. You need these tiny little golf pencils and we'll engrave them for you. So they say TRB on them. And we like thought out the color and the whole thing. And it's just a pencil, but we thought about it. (laughs) Is it because the Japanese like golf? I mean, and they do. No, because we have limited space on our table. (laughs) Oh, I see. And so we had big tall... Japanese pencils at one point and they get knocked over and they'd be on the floor and then people would be like, I don't have a pencil. And now, like, you just can't say that because it's just there on the table. The mother of necessity, small pencils. Got mm-hmm. it. So back to how did you get the space? So I had been working in this tiny little champagne bar in the basement of this space that is now Tokyo Record Bar. It was called Riddling Widow. And I called it 
a ship box for champagne because it was literally that. It was 16 seats. It was really dark and gloomy. It looked like a little bordello. It was um, it was black wallpaper. I'm not sure you've lost red, bordello even though ceiling. you changed the colors. Well, yeah. yeah, that's true. The like, plastic. We definitely keep it a little like mysterious and sexy in that way. Um, but I was there for about a year and a half, almost shy of two years, I suppose. Um, and I used it as a space to kind of work out all of these really fun ideas that I wanted to do with champagne. And one of them happened to be this idea for Tokyo Record Bar, which we would do on Thursdays. I would do it with a friend of mine. His name is Mike Majors. And Mike Majors would travel all over the world because he did some books with Roads and Kingdoms and he would collect vinyl. He's a big audiophile. And he came to visit me when I first took over the space at Riddling Widow, and he said, you know, this really reminds me of these tiny little jewel boxes in, in, uh, in Japan. So I was like, okay, cool, let's do it. He's like, what? I was like, you come in. You're like DJ, <laughs> I'll like do champagne omakase, like we'll do this thing. And it turned out to be one of our best nights. Um, and so when the business upstairs was going away, they were leaving the space, I started the exercise of what it would be to take over that space, move the champagne bar upstairs, and that left kind of a little hole in the literal space down there of what we're going to do. And I went through so many different ideas in my head. Ooh, what were some of the discarded ones? Um, the residence, which is still something that I think we might work on. Um, it was a space, especially at the time where unfortunately a lot of chefs had just lost their restaurants. It was like, or the restaurants were closing. Um, and it seemed like there was this hole in the market, honestly, for people to test out new restaurant concepts and ideas without having the overhead of a space and rent, etc. cetera. Um, and they would have the opportunity to do it two times a night for 16 people for as long as they wanted. It could be a month, it could be three months, etc. And as much as I love this idea and still think that we can incorporate it into Tokyo Record Bar, there were just too many liabilities. <laughs> there was too much booking, there was yeah. too much it's promotion. There, were, Yeah, absolutely. And as you know, we're a very small team and I just got really freaked out. Yeah. So <laughs> I was like, you know, this place needs to have an identity before we start inviting people to come into it and do things there. And um, Tokyo Record Bar just kept coming into my mind of no one hates music. <laughs> I mean, and if you do, like you're a freak and you shouldn't come anywhere by where the things I want to do. But um, yeah, no one, no one will um, give you a hard time about being in an intimate space amongst good people with good food and good music and good drinks. Um, so that's how that evolved. Now, I've read you talk about, you know, I'm like a New York Jewish girl, you sure. know, who is doing this Tokyo Record Bar as an homage, which I think part of the, your concern might have been that you would be labeled... Um, what is the word that you like cultural uh, appropriation? Exactly, that yes. you've done that. Yeah. And uh, have people come after you for that? Like, what are you, you know, you're not Japanese, like, why are you doing this? Yeah. Um, it's a, it's has a, that happened and has that been painful or? Yes and no. Um, I mean, I don't know. People have said some things to my face for sure. 
And in the moment, you know, I guess it it's hurtful. I don't know. what What is it hurtful? I mean, they feel hurt by me, and I guess I feel hurt by them. But I think we really wanted to get ahead of this because... And the only reason, because, is I don't have a background with Japanese food or Japanese beverages. I have spent the last eight years of my life dedicated to champagne. Um, And this idea for Tokyo Record Bar really hinged on the question of, has Ariel been to Japan? Uh (laughs) And I have not. Right. Um, And when people ask me, you know, I say I have not. Um, I do plan on spending some time there in the month of January But um, we weren't trying to copy. We weren't trying to ask the other people that are doing this in Japan to say, yes, they're doing what we're doing. Um, What we were trying to do was say, we love this idea of a space that is so devoted and dedicated to music and people that have devoted their life to music. We want to homage that. We want to emulate that. Um, But I will say that in these spaces, from what I am told, you are definitely a passive member in it. You do not get to participate. You sit there silently. You know, there is a lot of, um, like, lash back or flat, what, flat, hit back, what, response, what's my word? Push back. Push back. If you, you know, take a photograph, if you, you know, kind of try to capture these experiences. And I understand that because it's, it's really nice to be, um, in the moment and experiencing it, but that is not what we were creating. Um, so that is why we very much say that it's an homage. So let's talk about your eight years dedicating yourself to champagne because I feel like the Tokyo Record Bar evolved because it was cool and fun and, you know, you love music and it was a really good idea. And um, and it's been a magnet of sorts, but I feel in your soul you're like a bubble girl and not a bubble head, but a bubble girl. Bubbles. And <laughs> and uh, I like that your your name, you know, air relates to the bubbles in the champagne and RC, which actually sounds like a, a cola is effervescent, <laughs> and your middle name, you know, is a beer. So. <laughs> Clearly, uh, it's more than just, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it was, it's funny. In Jewish tradition and Kabbalah, they say that if you research your name, you will find out more about yourself because your name was inevitable. You were not given your name by chance, um, which is really funny when, we, when we're breaking down my name. Yes, um, in, in many yeah. parts. So, but you worked at Pops champagne bar in Chicago, which is the Ur champagne bar. Mm -hmm. It's been around for 30 30 years. 35 years. 35 years. Wow. Maybe even longer. What was it like? I, in my mind, and I've totally made this up because I've never been, Mm -hmm. but I see, you know, old white men in white shirts with like champagne armbands or something. Ah, Oh my God. I wish that's what Pops was like. Okay. What is Pops like? So I got to Pops in the second incarnation of it. The first was in a tiny part of Chicago, 
um, kind of like outside of Lakeview Lincoln Park area and um, it was probably pretty similar to what Ayers is now. It was intimate and small and they had jazz on the weekends huh. um, and it was very much like a community space. And then, unfortunately, or fortunately, with the kind of sprawl of Chicago, um, the downtown area became where everybody was going out. And a lot of people were leaving their neighborhoods. So Pops moved downtown, um, and they opened this kind of like massive space that could do like hundreds of people. Um, and the wine list was ginormous, and it had been the collection of the last 30 plus years wow. or I guess it was less time by that point. But um, it was really just an immense place for wine. And the people that had worked there had been working there for like minimum 10 years by the time that I was hired. I was the newest hire by like something like seven years. Oh my goodness. So it was um, a right time, right place scenario for me to walk into this truly mecca of wine with the knowledge and the education that all of these other employees had had. Um, so I spent about two years there just really investing myself in, in the wine. Uh, there was endless things by the glass. There was endless guests that will come in and would share wine with you. There's endless stories of, you know, the last umpteen years of people working, um, So like, what wine. did they, you know, what did you learn from the people who had been there so long? Like if you could characterize it. That unfortunately is not as pretty or as glamorous of a response. Tell me, that makes it yeah. more real. I think honestly, when you start working in luxury items, um, it's really easy to become accustomed to what comes with that, which means you make a lot of money. Opening a bottle of champagne is not that hard. Most people don't want to know about what you have to say about it. That's kind of what it was. Um, it was, it, for as much education as I got, there wasn't enough of a culture there that was warm and welcoming and educational based with the guests. Um, and that is just like the circumstance of servicing a lot of tourists, servicing a lot of people who are coming before or after an experience, um, people not coming for dinner, a lot of people not coming, having any interest in champagne, just thinking they like bubbles in a glass. So, you know, for the amount of positives that I got as an employee there, I think there is the negatives of being an employee there and being a service member that was kind of, um, you know, not, not really treated as, as a person that had kind of the knowledge and education that they did. Hmm. Really, it was, it was very much a job. So they wanted you just to like, uh, you know, sell some expensive wine, yeah. um, make some money for yourself, yeah. make some money for them, yeah. and leave. And you didn't, have to, you didn't have to do more than that. But it was more than that to me. And that is why eventually I had to move on from that because there was more that I wanted to do and, and I didn't want money to become a ceiling for me. Um, my father worked at like Brennan's and Christian's and Antoine's in the heyday of New Orleans in the, you know, right after he was drafted after the Vietnam War. And he said that if he never left those positions, he would still be in New Orleans serving because the money was so good, but there was a ceiling for him. 
And he wanted to do other things. So he moved to New York, became a photographer with like 40 bucks in his pocket and just called it a day. So that's kind of like what raised me. I wasn't like ready to be stationary in my work life. Now, did you leave Pops and go to a grant? Um, no, that was beforehand. It was beforehand. Yes. So tell me about the experience with Grant, because that must have been quite different. Yeah, so I was working at the office, which is underneath the aviary next in Chicago, which we make a joke that I'm really good in basements. (laughs) (laughs) Almost every job that I've ever had has been subterranean. Um, And my my experience here was really special. Um, I got to work alongside a guy named Jason Ceballos, who unfortunately has passed away. Um, at a very young age, at the age of 31. And he quite possibly had one of the best palettes I've ever gotten to work alongside. Um, And the office is this really unique little place. It's basically 16 seats in the basement. (laughs) Um, And it just has the most immense selection of anything beverage. And it's just grown over time. Um, If you want to drink chartreuse from, like, the 20s, they have it, you know? So... um, So I got this really fun task of getting to kind of facilitate this room. And um, I was never told that I couldn't bring my own style to it, which kind of sounds unique, knowing that you're working alongside the caliber of like three Michelin star people. Um, But yeah, that was never curbed. And they really gave me the opportunity to um, do my best and express myself while still finding my service style and my technique. Um, so how would you define those things and in what way did um, you know that organization uh, help you? It, super personal. Like my style is to make everything very personal, um, which some people may like and some people may not like. Um, but I don't think that everybody has the same experience at we know everybody doesn't have the same palette. We all don't like the same things. Um, so to give everybody the type of blanket, kind, good service um, wasn't interesting to me. You know, I really wanted people to be able to experience all these amazing things that we had, but they shouldn't feel that they had to do one particular thing. My least favorite question is, what's the most popular and what does everybody do? Because <laughs> because then you're not getting what you like or what you like to do, and you're paying for it, right? We always have to remember <laughs> that. At the end, there is a bill. So the bill should be reflective of your enjoyment. Although I think people would also argue that uh, putting themselves in the hands of an expert is a great thing and that you can guide someone to something that they wouldn't know otherwise. So there's probably two sides of that. Like I, um, I'm not a fan of the most popular question because I don't really care necessarily depending on the circumstance, but I really do care that you know that there's a chartreuse from 18, you know, 36 and I would have, I can't stand chartreuse, but if you told me to drink it because I'm missing I out. wouldn't. I can't stand chartreuse either. <laughs> I mean, I remember, okay, I had a positive experience in that with mackerel. Like, someone said, you just haven't had good mackerel. And That's I'm like, I don't believe you. I'm like, just trust me. Fair. I'm like, okay, I trust you. Yes. And I was 100% wrong on mackerel. But the question is, why do you trust them, right? This is an issue and something that we try to combat every day at airs, which is you're walking into a space where you already have a preconceived notion of the product that you're about to consume, right? Champagne's expensive, it's over, um, it's overanalyzed, it's 
pretentious. It's only for celebrations. You can't drink it with food. It will give you a headache, right? You already think all these things when you walk in. Okay, I don't, but that's fine. <laughs> Unfortunately, my, my average consumer does. And I have to find a way for them to trust me in a split second. And we, we do a couple things that I think are really unique to us, which can't really be replicated, which is we try to catch you off guard immediately. We have a beautiful hostess, like inside and out beautiful, who just literally hugs people as they walk in the door, right? And maybe you don't like to be touched and that would really catch you off guard. <laughs> but most people all of a sudden feel like, what? I'm in the West Village and everybody's just been bumping into me on the street and like I just watched a man pee in front of me and like there's garbage everywhere and it smells and there's a million NYU kids. And this girl just hugged me. Like, <laughs> I feel comfortable. And we need you to feel comfortable in our space because you're probably about to spend, you know, minimum $30 on a bottle of something, but upwards of $1,000 on something. And you have to trust us that we're not fooling you, that we're not taking advantage of you. Okay. So with that thought, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back from the break, we're going to talk more to Ariel Arce, who apparently was predetermined to have this amazing career in, uh, champagne bubbles liquids <laughs> and um taking care of people we'll be right back after this break Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market believes in seeking out local, fresh, and seasonal food and in supporting local farmers, makers, and the community as a whole, economically and agriculturally. Whole Foods Market believes in food that is vivid and colorful, fresh and full of nutrients. Food that connects you to your body, the seasons, and to nature. Food that helps you do more, sleep better, and wake up happier. Found in over 400 locations throughout the United States, Whole Foods Market only sells food that meets their standards, which means no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or sweeteners, ever. Whole Foods Market believes in real food. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more. Hello, and welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is your host, Dana Cowan, and today I have as my guest Ariel Arce from Tokyo Record Bar and Ayers Champagne Bar. So Ayers is about to undergo some kind of transformation. Dun, dun, dun. I'm dying to hear <laughs> what that is. Um, okay, I guess I can start with I think trusting your gut in business is something that is very underrated. I okay. Th <laughs> I think that especially as a young person um, and dealing with money 
and dealing with selling products, um, it's very easy to question if you're doing the right thing because inevitably people will work for you and they will need to make money and they will need to support themselves and you will have investors that you'll have to pay back and there will be rent to pay, etc. So um, when we opened Airs, I feel, I mean, I feel very proud of what we've done. I have a very big goal and I feel like we're on our way to achieve that. And that goal is to sell as much champagne as possible. (laughs) And it is to expose as many people as possible to champagne. And I don't mean this like we want to put sparklers on it and we want to walk it through a club and we want to sell it for hundreds of dollars. Um, my goal has been to make it as accessible as possible and for people to start thinking about effervescent wine as wine. Um, and I think we're doing a really great job at that because we have people who are super passionate and care about what they do that work there and are able to convince people every single day who want a cocktail or want a glass of red wine to drink something with bubbles in it. Um, But unfortunately, I've adopted this idea of affordable luxury, which I think is a really hard thing for people to wrap their heads around. Um, When you think of luxury, there there are things that come with that. You expect someone to serve you very properly. Um, You expect to be treated kind of in a certain way. Um, You you treat the people that work there in a certain way. Um, And it has created an environment where Unfortunately, a lot of people are doing kind of what we expected them to do, which is coming before or after dinner. Uh They are coming, you know, after an event. They are coming for a glass of something to catch up with a friend. Um, And, and of course, they're coming, you know, as groups to celebrate and have some bottles, which is everything that we hoped that people would do. But there's a dark side, right? I mean, somehow, this is not exactly what you wanted. Correct. Um... I want people to hang out and enjoy a bottle of wine. And I want them to do that every week. And I want them to feel that they can do that without emptying their pockets. And so the, I, the first thing that I said about trusting your gut in business is... Um, what was your gut? My gut was to open a space where people could buy wine, eat some food, and take wine away with them. So basically, a retail store. Do you you have a license to do that? I sure don't. Okay. And it's actually illegal in New York. That is why, um, unfortunately, that is not what we're doing. Um, That's not true. That's not unfortunately. But it's not legal. You can do it with beer, but you cannot do it with wine. It has nothing to do with the alcohol proofage or anything like that. Um, it just has to do with our awesome blue loss. Um, <laughs> but in New York specifically, but in general, um, wine programs kind of work where, you know, you have so much overhead to pay for and you have a liquor license to cover and all of this staff um, that we charge about a 2.5 to 3.5, depending on where you're going, maybe sometimes even four times markup on our wine. Um, and that makes wine inaccessible makes it really hard for people to be able to afford it. And we are deciding to throw all caution to the wind and to turn our margins or our model into a retail model in a restaurant, 
which means that we're about to mark all of our wine up just one time. Wow. And the only reason why I can do this is because of the relationship of heirs to Tokyo Record Bar. And this is why I say that you should trust your gut in business, where Tokyo Record Bar was a risk. It was um, a passion project that was something that we just thought would be fun. And we didn't really compromise in it. We thought this was going to be a cool way that we could do something that we want to do. And we're just going to put it out there. And if people don't like it, we'll rip it apart and we'll start all over again. And magically, people showed up. And that's a gift, right? And I'm still in awe that people show up every day. But luckily, because of the success of that, I am able to go back and evaluate what we're doing at Ayers and have the support of the business of Tokyo Record Bar to make this pretty big change. Um, and don't get me wrong, there's some ego involved here. Because oh, I, have, ego involved. I have that goal, which is to sell as much champagne as possible. And if I don't stay true to that, then we will fail. We will fail at airs because we will continue to sell a lot of champagne and people will have a glass of something and you know they'll they'll move on and they won't come back. So we haven't talked about food a lot, right? You're not a chef, right? Pretty sure. Nope. Nope. Um and upstairs, you know, I went like hard for the cheese cuz I happen to love cheese. But do you think that a key to having people stay longer and have the bottle is to change your food program? Maybe um we're actually about to change it to be five like big items, which is the five items are, you know, cheese and charcuterie and caviar and raw bar things, etc. oysters, blah, blah, blah. And then within each category, there will be like one other little thing that you can do. You can do a crazy grilled cheese. You can do a caviar sandwich. You can do, you know, like the more um, like comprehensive dinner items, I suppose, or like food items. Um, but Surprisingly, there are more people out there who will have a cheese plate or a charcuterie plate for dinner than people who just want to have, you know, a steak and potatoes. Um, which I, I think when we first opened, I was told by the New York community that you cannot just open a wine bar that doesn't have a like thoughtful food program. And so I put so <laughs> much thought into the food that it detracted almost from the wine. Our first week that we were open, I was like, oh my God, we opened a restaurant. And very quickly we scaled that back because it was so much more about the food than it was about the wine. And there are plenty of people out there who are really happy to just drink wine and eat some food with it. And we need to put that wine first. So, um, your boyfriend is a really well-known chef, um, Greg Backstrom from Olmsted. Did he have an influence on you in this, you know, food-first idea? <laughs> uh, Greg will always influence me because I respect him so much, um, and he's so good at what he does. Um, yeah, no, yes. I mean, I think that's a that's a hard thing to say that your partner won't impact you in some way. But um, Greg's also very respectful of the fact that we do really different things. Mm -hmm. um, and it's hard when you're opening a new business to not look at another person's business that's super successful and want to emulate that in some way. But you also have to kind of own 
what it is that you're doing and know that two people's experiences are so very different and two businesses are very different. And we'll always see the like copycats, right? You'll see the place that did it first and then you'll see the people that copy it. And unfortunately, the ones that copy it will never be successful because they don't have the soul for what it is, the authenticity of it. So um, I really needed to find that for myself. And I think it's taken a little bit of time just because it's scary out there to open a business. But again, I think the Tokyo record bar was where I really just said, this is my vision. This is what I'm doing. Everybody get on board or get out. <laughs> and like we did and, and it worked and it's, and it's working. Um, and I think I need to come back and, and own that at Ayers. And I mean, my name is on the door. So if it's not a reflection of the place that I want to be and what I want to do for the next 10 years, then... Then change the name. It right. Yeah, then change the name. <laughs> exactly. Turn it into something else. So um, you're you went to you grew up in New York as I did, uh, and you went Sweet to girls. Hey. hey. Yeah. Uh, and you went to LaGuardia and um, studied drama. So for listeners who don't know, it's an amazing high school of the dramatic arts and entertainment. Tell me what did. Um, LaGuardia and that background and then you went to University of Michigan and also studied I guess film film and producing and producing Mm -hmm. Um, what does that background bring to uh, your current exploits oh that I just dance through the hallways all the time and and jump on taxi cabs and do split leaves Um, (laughs) it was I mean are you referring to the fact that you went to the fame high school I sure am Um, I think it helps me every single day in what I do. I think that we literally produce theater every night and um, there's no way that I would have ever gotten, I think, into a business where I couldn't be performing um, in one way or another, whether that's like faking a smile or whether that's genuinely putting on a show. Um, But LaGuardia was such a special place. I'm like one of the only people who are like, my high school experience was better than any other experience Uh because... I made these lifelong friends, all of which like are following their own paths and doing their own things and are very committed to what they do, regardless of what I think of it or, you know, whatever they think of me. Um, and it's been really nice to live a life of support. Um, I've always felt supported by my family and by my friends. And a lot of people do not have the luxury of saying that. And I think that has a lot to do with the community that I grew up with and the people that I was surrounded by. And before that, before LaGuardia, I went to Friends Seminary, which is a private school, Quaker private school, downtown in New York. Um, And it was a very different environment. And I remember not wanting to leave because I had changed schools so many times up until that point. And my mother was really forceful on the fact that I would go to LaGuardia if I got in. Because she was like, you need to be surrounded by different people. People that, frankly, are not white and are not rich. And you have to be around the culture of New York. And if she hadn't forced me to really do that, I probably would have stayed. And that my high school experience was the first time I really think I saw New York for what New York was. And now do you feel like in um, your two restaurants, you're living a more true New York experience? Because you are, as you said, like right in the heart of there's guys peeing on the sidewalk and there's the NYU students and there's the, there's the tourists and... Like, does it somehow seem like a, a deeper expression of New York to you and what you're doing, or no? 
Well, I think the New York that we grew up in is very different than what the New York is now. Um, I mean, I grew up in a really dangerous neighborhood, which is now like super gentrified and like considered upper Chelsea. But, you know, my mom, when she, there's an amazing story of my mother being pregnant and like walking outside the front door and like kicking bums and like, you know, swatting away guns and basically telling people to get the hell out of the vestibule because, you know, her friend was coming over or something. Like she was such a pioneer to move into that neighborhood and raise a family there. And how did she make that choice? That sounds very ballsy. Out of necessity. She wanted to do something. She wanted to be a photographer. And she would do anything she could to do that. And she had the opportunity to buy this place in the 80s. And she did it. And she ran her photo studio out of there. And yeah, it was crazy. It was totally crazy. And So you had uh, two parents who were photographers. Yes. My dad was, my dad, my dad shot food photography and my mom shot still life and fashion. And my father was one of the old school heyday food photographers who shot all of the packaging, like for Newman's own, for Hellman's, he's the Cars Crackers photo. And I was his assistant. That was one of my first jobs. And that's how I got into the food business was working with him and he's from New Orleans and he was an unbelievable cook. He taught me everything I needed to know about food and kind of how to break it down. And then I would work alongside these incredible food stylists, some of which are still, you know, working. And they taught me about how to make food beautiful and how to make drinks and the philosophy behind, you know, creating these gorgeous, beautiful dishes. And, uh, and yeah, it was really a very unique childhood. It, it is Always interesting to me the way in which um, the type of upbringing we have influences our um, our decisions, our choices, and it, in your case, what great food and visual culture really. Um, and then it turns out your dad's handy and helped you build the restaurant. Yes, which is, <laughs> he's the ultimate Renaissance man, and is the only reason why I can be successful in life is because he'll build my restaurants for me. <laughs> Well, that's not to say it's the only. <laughs> but um, at, as the close of the show, I'd love for you to share with us the words that you live by, like that you wake up to and think about. Well, one is the first thing that my mother ever taught me, which is always be kind, which I think in this day and age is really important. And it's also a very easy thing to lose sight of. Um, but if you try to be kind, if you try to be empathetic and try to see both sides of the coin, um, it's a lot harder to make decisions. But hopefully you can understand or try to understand people a little better. Um, and you can live your life a bit more comfortably knowing that you took the, the kind approach. Um, and the other one is... Oh, it's so corny, but everything... But you're, you're so not a corny person, so hopefully coming from you won't sound corny. Okay, I've gone back and forth on this one, but for me, I think everything happens for a reason is something that is really important. And then also the other side of the coin, which is my, my downfall, is that you are in charge of your own destiny. Ooh, why is that your downfall? Because... Um, well, that's not my downfall, but my downfall is seeing both sides of the coin, oh. which is like <laughs> having both of those dualities is that when, when good things or bad things come your way, 
you should appreciate them and try to look at them and analyze them in a way that you can grow from them and grow to be better and stronger and hopefully not repeat your bad patterns. Um, but then you also have to remember that you are in charge of the things that you do and you can make anything happen for yourself if you are willing to work for it. And the hard work is out there for you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's waiting for you. It's waiting for yeah. you. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm going to put you to, to work with um, one last bonus round, which is, you know, I'm not going to say everything about champagne that there is to know, but you know a whole ton. And I love champagne. I, um, I do treat it as a wine because I'll have champagne. I'm happy to have champagne throughout a meal um, as opposed to for a celebration. Mm-hmm. But I'm also really cheap. Okay. And so I love the idea of a recommendation for the listeners mm. and secretly for me as well. We're not so secretly. <laughs> uh, what? And it doesn't... Do you feel committed only to champagne? Should I speak broadly? <laughs> I should speak, speak broadly. <laughs> Don't be narrow just about champagne, the region. But, um, but what champagnes do you recommend that are available, right? Because if you have a grower champagne, there might be like a thousand bottles right. of it, which wouldn't be so good. Um, but that's available, accessible, and delicious that someone could find in a um, wine shop. Mm. Oh, God. Okay, we could speak on an entire episode about this. But the beauty of what's coming out of Champagne right now is a lot of these small producers where you can find wines from incredible villages at an incredible price that are very value-friendly. Um, if you decide to go the grower-producer route, which is the you know kind of farmer wine, um, I would say any Chardonnay from Chouy, so a Blanc de Blanc from Chouy is an amazing value. You How do you spell Chouy? C-H-O-U-I-L-L-Y. I'm going to have people all over New York City looking for <laughs> Chouy Blanc de Blanc. But the reason why I say that is because it is, um, it's got beautiful terroir where it's exposed to a lot of sun and it makes the wines very rich and warm. And so you get kind of the benefit of having what is like an older style of wine for less money. And um, it's a crowd pleaser. Um, I also like don't want to be a broken record, but Cremants um, are a style. Cremant is a style of wine. Um, and they can be made from anywhere in France and sometimes either other places. Um, those are always a great value, but I would ask for something with some maybe extended aging. Okay. Because a Cremant with a little bit more age time does give it a little bit more complexity, some more depth to it. And at what point, like... You don't need to spend more than $20 for a Cremant, and you don't really need to spend more than $35 on a really good champagne of, like, a place like Aster Wine and Spirits. Favorite producer? Ooh, I would get shot if I answer that question. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> I want you to live. I will say that last night we had nine of my hero champagne producers in the building of Ayers in Tokyo Record Bar, and that was pretty incredible. So who are the nine? Can you meet me? Um, there was Rudolph Peters from Pierre Peters, uh, Cedric Mousset, um, Jean-Paul Abrar from Marc Abrar, Amar Gain from uh, Arnaud from Amar Gain, um, Charton Taillé, Alexander, um, Geoffroy uh, <laughs> I don't need to give you other names. Um, that's off the top of my head right now. That's It was pretty incredible. That is. Some of which awesome. have never been to New York City before, and it was the first time they had ever been to New York City and came and visited. Wow. 
I died. You died. I died. <laughs> but you came back. We, I wasn't going to kill you, and you I died anyway. I did for your show. Uh, champagne and takeout. What would you get for takeout? Oh, well, I'm a pizza obsessive, which is kind of apropos for where we are. Um, so pizza and champagne is number one. Um, I don't generally drink champagne with any spicy food, but I'm super obsessed with spicy food. So then I drink like a tequila gimlet or a gin and tonic. <laughs> um, and I also think champagne is incredible with anything, with, with um, Italian food. Champagne's really great with Italian food. That's why there's really great Italian sparkling wines. Okay. You've heard it from Ariel RC. (laughs) This is Dana Cowan. And thank you for listening to this episode of Speaking Broadly. Ariel, um, how can people find you on social? Ah, okay. You can find me at RC Cool, A-R-C-E-C-O-O-L, my actual first aim. email just um you can find airs at air champagne parlor and you can find tokyo record bar at tokyo record bar that's great and you can find me dana cowan at fw scout please send me any suggestions um comments criticisms uh recommendations for great guests i love hearing from you um, i want to thank my amazing engineer david tatashore and the best listener ever carlin thompson so uh we'll catch you next week Uh, Have a great week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.